Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Mayhem at the Ministry. Today we will be discussing a chapter that is a combination of cozy burrow times, political scandal, and foreshadowing of events to come. The Weasley crew heads out early the next morning, passing a confused Mr. Roberts, and taking a port key back to the burrow. When they arrive home, Molly is extremely emotional and relieved. She was really worried that they were dead, particularly Fred and George, who she yelled at right before they left. Mr. Weasley starts reading the front page article in the paper that blames the ministry for mishandling the riot and insinuates that people might have died in the forest. This article is written by Rita Skeeter, and this is her first mention in the series. Arthur and Percy immediately head into work to do some uh, PR, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione go upstairs for a private chat where Harry tells them about his dream and about his scar hurting. He also brings up Trelawney's prediction from last semester. They react exactly as he predicted in Chapter 2. The rest of the week goes by with everybody prepping to go back to school, but Arthur is stressed and overworked, and it's not helped by the fact that Rita Skeeter is snooping around the ministry. She also finds out about Bertha Jorkins being missing and is trying to expose other potential scandals. When Harry and Ron are finishing packing, Mrs. Weasley comes in to bring them some dress robes, which she says they will need for formal events at school this year. Ron's are hideous because she had to buy them secondhand, and Ron insists that she n- he will never wear them. The chapter ends on a sour note because Ron is extremely upset that everything he owns is rubbish. So even though this follows a uh, very distressing chapter and most of the characters are not having a good time, this is still a cozy burrow chapter, hmm. as I would label it, which is kind of the best chapters, um, where they're really describing all the Weasleys and Harry and Hermione and everyone hanging out, a lot of descriptions of um, what things look like inside the burrow, what Mrs. Weasley's doing. Mm-hmm cooking their clock um that shows where everybody yeah, is we get another description of the clock um so it's it's a fun it's a fun chapter and not a lot of not a lot of content wise happens but there is a lot happening behind the scenes so let's start with the article um where we're introduced to rita skeeter i think it's interesting to just look at like what different people say about her um for example i remember Bill and Percy and Mr. Weasley all comment on her at some point. And I think whereas Bill kind of says she never has anything good to say about anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, she called me a long haired pillock when she interviewed Gringotts right. vault breakers. Um, Percy says she's got it in for the ministry of magic in particular. Um, and Mr. Weasley just kind of thinks that she'll write anything as long as it's scandalous enough to attract attention. Yes. So I think all of those have some sort of element of truth, but maybe Mr. Weasley is the closest to the mark. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, she's a really interesting character that we'll obviously see more of in the book. But I think um, she is, as we see the way she treats Harry, like she wants the best, most scandalous, most dramatic story, no matter what. And I think this, you know, she's using this really horrible tragedy and, um, you know, terrorist act as a opportunity to um pit different groups against each other not just the groups that are already pitted against each other but like very much the ministry against um 
the public and vice versa. So trying to insinuate that there was cover-up of dead bodies, that this was more serious than it actually was, um, mm-hmm. that all this stuff is happening. So, yeah, she's she's just in for the sensational journalism. Yeah, and again, I would say, you know, uh, like last chapter we were talking about how it kind of hits differently this year than it used to mm-hmm. because, like, it's, you know, this sort of thing is more real. This happens more often nowadays. Um, I think, again, this kind of hits differently this year because when we first read this as kids, like, journalism was, I think, a lot more respected as an institution um, than it is now. I think what with the advent of, like, online journalism – um, and, and clickbait, um, to say nothing of like, you know, our, our former president's, um, denigration of the press almost mm-hmm. every day. Uh, today there are a thousand real life Rita Skeeters in the world who are writing these types of articles, like for the sun, the daily mail, um, horrible things about people all the time. And, and world leaders regularly attack legitimate journalists by comparing them to these people. Yeah. And I think it, you know, Again, you said you think this is published like 2001, so this is, you know, not really any internet stuff happening, so it's even more kind of um, more salient now, but I think um, the comparison here was supposed to be very much like tabloid, British yeah, tabloid. British tabloid journalism. Which, you know, like, is very is very real and is very severe, um, and it still continues, but just with uh, online um, news, blogs, whatever, like you said... Um, it's even worse and the the especially the headlines that she uses mm-hmm. and the kind of insinuating of just making up stuff yeah um, and this sort of like outrage journalism type of thing where it, like nowadays if you have any like viewpoint that you want to be backed up by an article you can find an article for it mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how outlandish or crazy or stupid that viewpoint is someone somewhere has written an article agreeing with you right And I mean, conspiracy theory, like, you know, this could even go into that territory where I don't think that Rita Skeeter is necessarily focused on spreading conspiracy theories, but she's focused on, she would definitely be down for, like, people interpreting conspiracy theories from her um, thing. So this whole idea of, like, the ministry is covering up um, that there were people that died during this riot, you know, that's just a a major thing that we can think of, obviously, lots of parallels to... um, in our world. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, maybe she's hit on something, um, J.K. Rowling has hit on something here with this character in the sense of, like, Rita Skeeter taps into this, like, either conspiratorial or just, like, you want to believe bad things about people um, that draws eyes and draws, in today's world, clicks on the internet. Like, if you have a really stupid hot take, a lot of people will come to your page and yell at you about it, but you just got a lot of attention. And the next time you say something, you'll get a lot of support for it because mm-hmm. now that you have all this attention focused on you mm-hmm. um, and, and people know that. And so it's become this culture of saying really outlandish things um, just to get attention, even if you know that you're going to be attacked for it. And she has, we see already that she has a lot of power. It's not just... Um... You know, she has household name recognition. She's household name, and she's already like clearly we can we can assume that she's getting kind of more known, but that she has done a lot of articles like this because yeah. the the older people here know know about her. Um, mm-hmm. And but just the fact that you know Mr. Weasley is seeing this article right away and seeing oh Rhea Skeeter wrote an article about this. This is going to make my job really hard. This is going to make everyone's job really hard at the ministry. Um, and that's that's true. 
But I also wonder whether the writing of this character is harmful in a sense, because this was at a time, as we said, when like journalism was held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the only named journalist in That's the entire true. series. That's true. And it really paints them in a terrible light. I know. I wonder whether Rowling had some sort of beef with journalists or whether it was unintentional, but I think she probably did harm the profession by writing the character in this way. That's true, yeah. I think I think it could be... It's harmful that there's no... You there's know, no good journalist fighting Yeah, you her. would think that, that we would have at some point, especially later on, like, as the resistance kind of builds up, that there would be, like, a character of, uh, you know, another journalist at yeah. the Daily Prophet that's really trying to write these, like, radical opinion pieces against the ministry. It or... would have been cool if they had, like like lee jordan or someone like lee jordan mm-hmm. who was like on potter watch that radio show yeah um who was like also a correspondent for the daily prophet and who was like writing like under a pseudonym um like letters yeah. to the editor or something but instead they just go though like voldemort took over the paper and he controls everything that gets published thing and what happens to Regis Skeeter? We... um she publishes that book on dumbledore in the oh, seventh right. book that's like a huge thing that harry has to grapple with and yeah. she ends up being mostly right which is part of the weird thing like she has all these conspiracy theories about Dumbledore but most of them end up being true yeah so she's a complicated character and it's interesting um that this is our perception of journalists in this world um but we have not we have not met her yet and at this point we have no reason to think we will meet her so it is a good kind of setup yeah for when she comes comes in person later yeah I think this is pretty um, common trope in J.K. Rowling's writing at this point is that she introduces a character by name only, and then she just kind of hints that they might be important later. You know, they mention Mundungus Fletcher in this chapter. He's mentioned by name, but in the context of like a ridiculous li- like lawsuit about property damage, mm-hmm. um, and and it's kind of like oh, like so he's kind of a scumbag. Um, we never think that we're going to see him again, but then. He, he becomes sort of a minor character in the next few books. Yeah, there's a lot. This I mean, this book we've talked about a lot. That, I mean, it, it's just propelling, definitely propelling the rest of the series. But I didn't realize how many things are first mentioned or how many mm-hmm. characters are first mentioned. Things and, are first set up here and then they pay off books later. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so Dung, as we later know him, um, will, will come up. So we mentioned last chapter that um, during the events of this chapter, Crouch Senior is actually placed under the Imperius Curse. Yes. At some point, because it happens between the World Cup when he dismisses Winky and next chapter when Mad Eye Moody is attacked. Right. Um, because that was his son that attacked him. Um, so at some point, we don't know exactly when, but this chapter takes place over like a two week period. Peter Pettigrew comes to his house with Voldemort and they put him under the Imperius Curse and then they release his son. And that sets everything else into motion. Um, and as we pointed out last chapter, his dismissal of Winky was instrumental in allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm, so right. he didn't know that it would happen, but it was it was a mistake, definitely. So every time we see Crouch Sr. after this point, we have to keep in mind that he is under the Imperious Curse. Right. And I think that the writing of his character up until this point was... Um, was was very good in terms of that fact because mm-hmm. he is already kind of seems like he doesn't have a personality and he's, very he's like a note. robot yeah. yeah so it he doesn't actually really seem very different to the people that don't know him well um, yeah. as he just time seems goes like on. he just seems like tired and 
takes longer to say things, kind of. Yeah. But, yeah. And we can, there's lots of reasons why, um, you know, explainable reasons why he would be stressed and all this stuff later on. So, it it is, it's a good kind of misdirect there. But mm-hmm. that that is happening behind the scenes. Um, I think that what's interesting about all of this with, like, the, the Rita Skeeter and, like, what's happening at the ministry is that, this this incident is huge and is kind of, like, world-changing in terms of the ministry in the wizarding world. Um, but I think it is definitely something that could have been quashed or, like, gone away if um, this didn't... If, if more didn't happen mm-hmm. going forward, right? So, like... Like, nobody died. Nobody died there. It was scary, but we could say, like, all right. They modified all the muggles' memories. This is a group of radicals. Like, we we now know we need to be more vigilant that they're still around, but it could have sort of been swept under the rug. And I think um, it obviously is not, given what happens at the tournament. Um, But we, at this point, I think they're just saying, like, this is an isolated incident. We're trying to control it Mm -hmm. politically um, and not realizing that uh, Von Moore really is coming back and he really is doing this. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, she discovers the truth about Bertha Jorkin's disappearance, and then that becomes a whole scandal. Um, so Ludo Bagman gets put in, in a little bit of hot water for that as well. And so the, with the, our two our two ministry employees um, in the Weasley family, as of now, we have um, Arthur and then Percy. And so Percy is being pretty obnoxious, as typical <laughs> in this chapter, but especially because we know kind of what Arthur had to deal with and what he went through. Percy actually says in front of his mother and in front of the family, like, you know, dad really shouldn't have made a statement when he did. And, you know, even though he wasn't named, that was not okay. And Miss Weasley really, you know, yeah, she kind of goes off. And and that's uncommon, right? Yeah. Uh, Percy is the apple of his mother's eye. Mm -hmm. So he definitely steps out of line by criticizing his father. And obviously Molly and Arthur have, the best relationship of anybody in the series, yeah. I would say. They love and respect each other so much. Um, and they're so supportive. So when Percy, like, comes out against his dad, who really didn't say anything, he didn't make an official statement. All he, all like, you know, there were people gathered around there and he, they he were desperate for information. Yeah. And he just said, no one was hurt. Mm-hmm. We don't know who did it. I'm taking my family back home now. Yeah. Sorry. That's all I can say. Right, which was all he really needed to say. Which was true. Uh, and was true, but they, yeah. But they, Percy was like, he should have cleared it with his head of department first. And Molly's yeah. like, oh, come on, Percy. And I mean, again, go- going back to, like, what's happening behind the scenes and what happens with Crouch is that, you know, Percy is kind of the ultimate, like, it, it's very ironic that he's saying all these things about how things should be handled when um, the rest of the series, his boss is under the Imperius Curse. And or he the rest of this book. The rest of the book. Yeah. And he uh, doesn't notice and doesn't, um, <laughs> you know, do anything about it. Or obviously, you know, he couldn't do a lot, but he is like, everything's fine. And I'm like reporting to my boss and like reporting yeah. to his boss is somebody who is basically being controlled by Voldemort. Yeah. And, and. Crouch names Percy as his stand-in at a lot of things, and he's like advancing really quickly, mm-hmm. so he doesn't care. It's like, sure, yeah, I'll he's do it. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't have to think too hard about why this is happening because this is really good for my career, right? Until it's not. Um, when he realizes at the end that it was all a sham, uh, and that he's very embarrassed, but you know, it doesn't end up actually mattering because he gets promoted again to like on on the ministry's council or whatever next book. Um, yeah, it's just all. He, like, I mean, becomes a personal assistant to Fudge. It's very strange. Like, why would he get promoted after not noticing that Crouch was under the Imperious Curse for a year? I guess um, nobody did, but it's still... 
And still, you know, Percy is not looking good in this in this yeah. book. So it's extra ironic that he's calling his dad out for um, foolishly making a statement when he shouldn't have. So two chapters ago, we talked um, some about the class issues between Harry and Ron and the buying of the Omnioculars and then mm-hmm. Ron trying to pay him back with the gold that I don't think, they still don't know the gold is fake at this point. Um, no, Fred and George are the only ones who have realized it. Right. Um, because in this chapter, actually, something I wanted to point out is that they're like talking conspiratorially and they're like writing a letter and Mrs. Weasley's like, what are you boys doing? And they're like, uh, mom, don't yell at us or what if we crash in the Hogwarts <laughs> yeah, Express <yeah>. tomorrow? <laughs> and you, the last thing you said to us was an unfounded accusation. Um, so they're like diffusing the situation with humor, which is their, what they're so good at. But what they're actually doing is writing a letter to Ludo Bagman saying, basically, hey, you paid us with leprechaun gold and it's gone. We need gold yeah. that doesn't disappear, please. Because, you know, we, we won our we bet won our against bet. you. Yeah. So they know, but I guess they don't. They're not telling anyone else because they, for a variety of reasons. But yeah, for obvious reasons, they don't want people to know that Bagman uh, reneged on their deal. Um, they want to use that as leverage. So, so anyway, that's happening, um, and that that interaction with Harry and Ron happened, and then in this chapter we get another very immediate. Um, class difference between harry and ron where mrs weasley comes into the room says hey you have to have dress robes which is you know she's trying to just not have them ask too many questions about it and she's like here ron here's yours i had to get them secondhand which are described as like she's really embarrassed about it she's really embarrassed and we feel really bad and then she's like here harry this is yours i thought it would match your eyes they're like these pretty green robes and bright green um you know because obviously she used harry's money to buy harry's school things which is what she, you know he told her to do he that. told her to yeah. do and he you know internally is like feeling awful and feeling like i wish that i could just split my money with the weasleys because i have so much and i'm only one person and yeah. they need it but they never would because they're too proud and um just that exact moment of having to say like here's your nice stuff harry and here's your shitty stuff ron and yeah. you know he's mad at his mom but he also is just embarrassed because he knows that she can't afford it um, yeah, it's it's a big point of contention, and and it's one of the many things that really comes to a head mm-hmm. between the two of them in their relationship this year, um, when they become not friends anymore for a spat of chapters in the middle of this book. Yeah, I think I forgot that there was so much lead up to this. It's it's not just Ron is mad because you no, know it, in that it's moment, so many things. He's it's really a lot of things built up and. The whole idea of, like, Harry has money, Harry is entitled, Harry is famous. Like, that all comes together in a big thing for Ron when his name comes out yeah. of the cup. And and it's so much more than that. And we'll talk about that when that chapter hits um, in more detail. Right. But the fact also remains that it's nice for Harry to have these thoughts of, like, you know, I wish I could share all my money with the Weasleys, but they never take it, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't say any of this out loud. To them, no. And, and he never he never thinks of what's the right thing to say here when Ron is hurting so much. And he's so appalled and embarrassed that he's going to have to wear these dress robes. Like, he's horrified at the right. prospects. And then, as we're going to see next chapter, it, it embarrasses him horribly when right. he's on the train and Draco Malfoy finds the dress robes. Um he doesn't want to be an embarrassment. He doesn't want his family's situation to be an embarrassment. And he's resentful of that fact. And he's resentful of Harry for having so much. There's so much that Harry could have said in that moment. And instead he just says nothing. And I think that also builds resentment in Ron. It's true. Harry could 
Harry could do a lot better here. I think, you know, I try to remind myself that, like, Harry is a kid. He's 14. And also, he feels very complicated feelings towards Ron because he's like, you have this amazing family and I don't have... Even yeah. my parents. And... They each think the other is the lucky one. Right. And, you know, that's that's very much like grass is greener and also like yeah. money doesn't buy you happiness, like all these things. But he could still say something of like, hey, man, I'm sorry. This sucks. Like, I really would want to be able to give your family money. Or just like, and, how like, about I buy you dress robes and you give me back the omnioculars or whatever. Like, or how about I buy you dress robes for Christmas? Like... I don't know. They couldn't possibly be that expensive. Something, yeah. And it's hard, though, because I, I, we do see it's more things happen. It's hard to accept happen. charity, and Ron, Ron is so proud, and his family are so proud. Um, but but he always, I mean, in, in a lot of situations, Ron is able to allow Harry to do something nice for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's really more of just, like, he hurts so much in this situation that if Harry had offered something like that, I think it would have just hurt more. Yeah. But there's still, there had to be something that Harry could have said to make it better, you know? And maybe, I mean, I think Mrs. Weasley also, I mean, I, I don't want to blame her at all because she's dealing with a bad situation, but she could maybe have handled this a little bit differently or mm-hmm. made some decisions, right, about like, well, you know, I don't know, maybe she could have even asked, I guess she would just be too embarrassed, but like, to be able to say, hey, can I take, like, you know, can we sort of... A couple ha- sickles here and there. Yeah, can we sort of have, like, I didn't want to get Ron this horrible thing. Can can you both get kind of, like, mediocre ones? Or, like, honestly, she could have gotten them both secondhand robes and just had them been yeah. both and been like, hey, this is the money. This is what we had. You know, it, sure. it is it is kind of a, a strange difference to be like, well, here's Harry's money. I'm going to get him the nicest one. And Yeah. By the way, this is an, uh, an aside, but um, I was just remembering, as you said that, the what they looked like in the film, what the dress robes looked like, and they were basically like tuxedos with like a lot of frills. Oh yeah, those were weird. And I was so disappointed. I didn't like this movie for a lot of reasons, but I was mm-hmm. so disappointed that they weren't actual robes because they like never wear robes anymore. And it would have been a great opportunity to be like stylish, colorful robes. And also, it and wasn't like, green. Harry's weren't green. No, Harry's were not green. He just had a regular tuxedo. Um, and they all looked bad. They were all weird they did looking. Look bad. Ron's like looked the same amount of bad. But basically. like, I love this idea that like wizards wear these really flamboyant robes. They're always described as being like mm-hmm. you know very colorful, very like silly looking in a lot of ways. Like Dumbledore always wears a lot of purple, and lilac mm-hmm. is his favorite color. Um, but, like, in the films, they never do. And it's I so know. disappointing because I, I would have loved that. It adds so much flair to the world. Um, so in my head, uh, Harry has nice bright green robes that match his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Mayhem at the Ministry. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially Rita Skeeter please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we go through the barrier for Chapter 11, Aboard the Hogwarts Express. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox. Knox.